Welcome to episode 5 of Roaring Twenties Radio, the new Soho radio show for the 20s, bringing you the best in art, culture, books, poetry and activism. The show is presented by author and poet Selena Godden, arts journalist Amma Rose Abrams and myself, poet and activist Matt Abbott. We're extremely excited and proud to be broadcasting live on Soho Radio's Culture Channel this afternoon and you can also catch all of the episodes as podcasts afterwards in all of the usual places including Spotify and Apple Music and all that jazz. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Roaring20sRadio and the 20s is a 20s as opposed to the word. So please follow us, tweet us, get involved, give us your suggestions and your shout outs and we'll try and feature as much as we can. So, as I'm sure you can gather, we're not actually together in the studio for this episode. What we're doing is we're all recording our own individual segments at home, self-isolating, and then we're going to stitch them together to bring you one big juicy episode. So it'll be a slightly different feel and a slightly different vibe, but it's something that we're really excited to do. And obviously we're really happy to be bringing you this episode rather than just taking the easy route out and knocking it on the head. Because now more than ever, I think you'll agree, a two-hour episode with this kind of content is exactly what you need to get you through another Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, who even knows what day it is? I've got no idea. So in last month's episode, I gave you a roundup of the spoken word poetry events that I'd selected. And at the time, this was the 14th of March, I did add a caveat that a lot of them might be cancelled, but I did not quite realise where we were at and every single one of them was cancelled. So you might think that it'd be a futile exercise. However, poetry's had a bit of an online revolution since this has happened. So as opposed to me having no gigs to report, I've got even more gigs than usual to report. It's mad. There's like three or four gigs a night. I'm struggling to keep up with it. You know, normally you'd have, on a Wednesday night, you'd have one in Glasgow, one in Manchester, one in Brighton, whatever, because we're all online. It's mad. So I'll give you a roundup of the, the best activities, the best gigs that I've seen online. I'm also going to speak a little bit about how the pandemic has affected the mindset and the mental health of somebody who is a full-time writer and a full-time artist, because a lot of people are saying, oh, this must be a dream for you. You must be able to just sit at home and write all day. And in a weird way, it's sort of something that a writer's always yearned for. You can't leave the house. You can't go out and work. All you can do is stay at home and read and write. That, On one level, that should be paradise. But obviously, A, money is a big worry. And B, the circumstances are horrendous and nobody would wish this on anybody. So I'm going to speak a little bit about that because it is quite a curious position to be in. It's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of an odd one to navigate. Um, I'm also going to give you some writing tips because whilst it might be a difficulty for people who are writers to write in self-isolation, odd as that sounds, I realise for a lot of people who wouldn't usually pick up a pen and write, are doing so. And so I'm going to give you some poetry writing prompts, some creative writing prompts, and help you to get off the ground and get things off your chest and try and navigate what's happening in your head, maybe explore something that's in your subconscious, or maybe just give something a shot that you'd always wanted to do, but never really managed to find the time to do. Um, Right, so... On to my first picks. So first up, I've got a poet called Kirsty Taylor, who is a wonderful poet from Bradford. She's one of my favourite people and one of my favourite poets, and I'm always bigging up her work. So I'm really, really happy to kick off today's poetry with Kirsty Taylor's work. Um, it's a poem called A Place Called Bradford, and it's very important that it's Bradford and not Bradford. Um, and then following Kirsty Taylor, I have a track called Danny Nadelko by Idols. I'm sure you've heard it before. They're not exactly a small band, but Idols are one of my favourite bands to come along from the last few years. Um, they made me feel 16 again when I heard them. So we've got Kirsty Taylor and then Idols. 
I didn't always choose study class and book bags. Too busy being tempted by twos and lost dragging our heels down school corridors, climbing walls so we could be seen and heard. We chose our words carefully, tucked them safe into socks or down our tracks. Suit yourself, mate, as education wasn't great. For us, art teachers, too much poverty so they couldn't actually teach us special measures and Ofsted featured. So they spent the time pulling the air out and chairs out of walls, busy making unanswered calls, desperately trying to catch our falls. And chasing us, when we chose slamming in subways, we chose cider some days, we chose cheek and lip to get our ways. Chatting shit in postcoded tongues, prank calls in phone boxes just for fun. We didn't pretend to be posh, but we sometimes pretended to be happy. Hiding pain and misery up his sleeves, cos it wasn't always safe for us to grieve. Kids living lives you wouldn't believe. And getting on with it. I wore earrings and chains just to look hard, but I didn't have an horse tied up in yard. I shot with two at a time, or sure you'd get bad. So I went in by my scent. And I chose to come out my own person. This place taught me to take chances and risks. I wouldn't let opportunities go amiss. Where I'm from, you might think there are no doors to be knocked on. No steps to stand on, no cushions to land on. We're told not to hold our breath, cos here, love, there's nothing left. Note for you, note for me. But that is something that I choose not to believe. See, everything I chose to be, I can say hand on heart and heart on sleeve. It really was this place called Bradford. That meant me, me.
Okay, so now it's time for my spoken word poetry gig uh, preview. So Luke Wright, to start us off, he's doing a gig every single night. He started doing a gig every night when he started self-isolating, and he is adamant that he's going to do one every night until the theatres reopen. Every night at 8 o'clock on Twitter. Um, he started off for the first two weeks doing unique set lists. He then did a commissioned poem. On Wednesday night, he did a full performance of What I Learned from Johnny Bevan. So, yeah, he's really, really going for it. I think he's starting to feel it a little bit, but fair play to him. He's doing it every night. And uh, if you enjoy his sets, you can chuck a couple of quid into his virtual hat as well. Uh, Sonic Youth. Uh, I love Sonic Youth. I've mentioned them a few times in this radio show before. Uh, they have the Sonic Youth Social Club. So that is being broadcast live on Facebook and YouTube every Thursday night. They've got some fantastic lineups so far. I think they've done two or three. Um, and they've been raising money for, I believe it was homeless charities in Scotland they've been raising money for. So that's fantastic. Hammer and Tong. Uh, a lot of their nights are doing live gigs. So the Brighton night. Uh, the Hackney night. They have nights all over the country, I think from Cambridge to Liverpool, I'm pretty sure. And they've been doing gigs on Zoom. Um, And I think it's an amazing opportunity, really. Say if you go to the Brighton one every other month or whatever, it's highly unlikely you will have been to the Cambridge one or or elsewhere. And I think this is a great opportunity for you to see like the different flavours and the different moods of all the different nights around the country. It's really, really good. Um, a poet and playwright, Cecilia Knapp. She's doing weekly workshops at two o'clock on a Wednesday and they're free, so you should check that out. Uh, there's a page on Facebook called Isolate Live. It's not exa- it's not entirely poetry and spoken word. There's music and comedy on there as well, but they do seem to be having a lot of poets on the bill, so make sure you check that out. That's Isolate Live. Pretty sure they do it on a Saturday afternoon mainly, but um, again, it's no fixed time or date. Louise Fazakali, who's on Nims and Fugs, she's got a new book out called Bird Street. Uh, a lot of the poems were featured on one of Louise's first albums that she released with Nims and Fugs. Uh, she's just published that now, so she's doing loads of online stuff. I know last week she was doing an event called A Lovely Word in Liverpool. Um, she's really, really busy, so make sure you follow her. Her handles are Louise the Poet. Burning Eye Books, they release a lot of poetry books, and they're basically doing online Instagram launches, so you should Check them out. They're doing book launches on their Instagram feed and they're also doing a podcast, a regular podcast, chatting to all of the poets who are publishing books and missing out on that physical launch. And so they're giving them a leg up with some great digital content. Um, And then finally, find the right words in Leicester. So they're basically publishing each month's event as a podcast. You have to sign up to their Patreon uh, and in in, in exchange for the ticket price, you get a podcast which features sets recorded by the artists who are supposed to be performing each night. And find the right words host and programmer Jess Green. I know that she's doing workshops and uh, other things in her Patreon as well. So that's just a little selection of the stuff that's going on. Um, I also published an article, my monthly column in the state of the arts talking about poetry's online revolution i think it's amazing it's it's making it so much more accessible for people who don't live in or near a big city the only slight drawback is that there's no live subtitles obviously so it's not entirely accessible but it's a lot more accessible than it was and i think that once we go back to normal hopefully there'll still be a lot of this activity online because it gives you a lot more freedom with your programming it gives you a lot more freedom when it comes to attending and maybe people are more likely to give it a chance if they're sat watching instagram as opposed to having to travel to a a venue at a certain time at a certain date you know i think i think it's going to be a good thing for poetry in general As I say, it's a fantastic period of online poetry revolution and long may it continue. 
All right, so next up, uh, the next poet I've chosen is Nafisa Hamid. I absolutely adore Nafisa's work. Uh, she did the Livewire Leeds event with Selena Godden in October. She's a wonderful poet. She's a British-Pakistani poet based in Birmingham. I, I was introduced to Nafisa's work through Verve Poetry Press, um, who published my debut collection, Two Little Ducks, and she's she's really going places. So the first poem, uh, sorry, the next poem that I've chosen is by Nafisa Hamid, and the song that follows that is The Night by Frankie Valley and the four seasons because well it's one of my favorite songs of all time it always gets me moving it always gets me dancing it always cheers me up it makes me wish that i'd been around for northern soul the first time around so we've got nafisa hamid and then frankie valley and the four seasons another walk part one king's heath park sometimes i put the world on mute and just watch bodies talk lads on a bench not speaking, look out onto a Muslim family playing cricket. They remind me of good times with my own. The father is still in fresh Juma Sulvarakamis. The young girl wears a dress I might once have had to. It's humid. A dusting of rain on necks fine as sieved flour. Two hijabi women on another bench, crane their necks back and laugh. I can't hear the laugh, I don't, I don't hear it, but one of them has their eyes closed shut, crow's feet shuffling ready for flight. Clutching the other woman's shoulder, the other holds their belly. A nodding of the head, I touch my own belly and smile and enjoy being a woman right here in this second. Pray God protects them and keeps them laughing. Not laughing, but... Laughing, like proper laughing. I smile at the dog walkers, smile at the kitten-eyed couple on the bench, smile at the teenage girls giggling at something on a phone screen. Smile at the woman with the backpack and bright purple hair, smile at the wife who follows three feet behind her husband. Smile at the breakdancing mum, smile at the now empty bench beside me, smile at my bulging nipples, smile at the mountainous clouds and the calm of trees and their shadows and the thirsty grass and the hole in the hedge, exposing a woman rolling on the grass trying to find a comfortable position to look, to look up at a sky. We've got a sky closing its eyes over us, sighing. Content. Man, I have smiled so much, my jaw has locked. Half smiling hurts. Hope hurts too. A nicer kind of hurt, though, I guess. It feels good to be outside. It feels good to be alive. It feels good to be less alone in the hole. What are we doing? So, what are we doing? Side note. Remember to mention this to the psychiatrist on Monday.
So I'm going to have a little talk now about how the pandemic and the lockdown and the social distancing has impacted somebody who is a creative and who makes their living out of writing and performing. So the most obvious impact is that um, my two primary income streams are schools and being on stage. Neither of us are going to be feasible for the next... I don't know, three, four, five, six months. The worst thing about it is not knowing how long. If they just said, oh, yeah, it's three months, then, okay, I can handle it. Some people are saying it's going to be a year. Some people are saying we're going to be back to normal in June. I've got no idea. So financially, it just puts a whole heap of anxiety and stress and worry. Um, My partner, uh, Maria, she's also a, a freelance artist. So we're both in the same boat, paying rent on a London flat, which is not ideal. So the anxiety is extreme on a day to day basis. It's sort of reminds you how fragile and unpredictable um, and vulnerable you are as a freelance artist. And it's something that you don't really think about. You're sort of aware of, but you always think, oh, well, what's going to happen? Um, And then this happened. So it's not great. And that anxiety and that level of worry and uncertainty makes it really, really hard, I think, to be creative. Because when you're writing a poem, for example, you're sort of capturing those 
moments in between the 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 mundane day to day. You're sort of thinking outside the box. You're imagining. You're being nostalgic. Whatever. And I think to get into that relaxed, sort of slightly removed reality, that that relaxed, slightly distanced headspace, it's really difficult when anxiety is hanging over you so so much. And also when people are saying, oh, you must be writing loads, you must be writing loads, you must be writing loads, it puts pressure on. And so you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do it. And you put yourself under so much pressure that, again, that stops you from being creative. So, like, I'll do a social media post and it'll get likes. I'll do an application for this project. I'll do it. It's all stuff with a very definite outcome. And I think you, you, you con yourself into being productive, but it's really, really hard to be creative. And I know it sounds stupid, right? But sitting there and writing for a day when all this stuff's going off in the world and you're working on a poem or on, on, a, on a novel or whatever, for me, I feel a bit self-indulgent. I feel like I'm being a bit irresponsible by just going, la, 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 I'm going to write in my bubble, which is totally unfair and is not correct it's not right it's not fair at all it's just i think it's just the mindset that you find yourself in when it's such a bizarre experience and obviously like the daily death rate is going up in the hospitals and you know that there's so many more people dying that aren't in hospitals or that haven't been tested and so to write in a way feels like the least important thing in the world whereas i think there's going to be so much beautiful art that comes out of this situation and people are going to explore themselves a bit more people are going to be a bit more introverted and I, and I do think with the time and space that we're being given there is going to be an awful lot of beautiful art and it might be that most of it's actually created in the immediate aftermath with a little bit of distance with a little bit of reflection but as a result of this I think there's going to be a lot of creativity but you know we'll all get through it um, podcasts like this will hopefully help I know that creating this podcast has really really helped for me and I cannot wait to get to the other side when we can all gig together again. The atmosphere will be wonderful. I do think we'll be more compassionate. I do think we'll have more empathy. And I do think that there'll be some wonderful art. And people might surprise themselves. Okay, so the next poet um, that I've chosen is Ollie O'Neill. Uh, Ollie O'Neill is a poet who's published work with the Outspoken Press. I was introduced to her by Joelle Taylor at a um, a poetry writing workshop in London last year. She's also performed at a Live Wire Leeds event, and I'm a big fan of her work. So we've got Ollie O'Neill next. And then following on from that, we've got Suzanne Vega with Tom's Diner. Now, it's not the remix version that was uh, a massive hit in the charts. This is the original version, which is actually a cappella. Uh, and I just think it's spellbinding. It's absolutely captivating. Her voice, the lyrics, the performance, it's really, really beautiful. So we've got Ollie O'Neill and then Suzanne Vega. The baby is crying out for another baptism, just can't get close enough to God. Jesus wept and well he might, we are all changed by what we bring to our lips. Lover, liquor, a man's thumb so large it fills my whole mouth. I saw you in the off-licence, lying down on the middle shelf, practising. I'm unfurling against your death, like the wind, let it batter me. So inevitable. The first time I meet my psychiatrist, she presents a scenario to the group. Says a young boy no more than six is killed. Hit by a car, flung from his bike on an intersection, and she asks us if we think he should have died. I say no. Remember tiny coffins, how I've seen one so small and so precious, a ring box, an occasion, a diamond in reverse back to coal, but she says yes. This was a test, the answer was yes, some things just happen and we must accept them no matter how distasteful 
ultimately, the boy chose to ride his bike that day. The car was already on its way. I'm remembering my first drink. Was it red wine at the altar or Guinness in your stomach, the two of us bonding my unborn tongue thick and numb and becoming? I'm accepting the hard swell of your body protecting itself from itself. Know what it is to get dizzy on self-destruction. How often it feels like self-preservation. How long will you last like this? Have you ever thought of death properly? Do you know which song you'll disappear to? Have you considered how quickly your body will be set to flames with all of that spirit inside of you? I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. It is always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter To the woman who has come in, she is shaking her umbrella And I look the other way as they are kissing their hellos And I'm pretending not to see them, and instead I pour the milk I open up the paper, there's a story of an actor Who had died while he was drinking, it was no one I had heard of And I'm turning to the horoscope and looking for the funnies When I'm feeling someone watching me and so I raise my head There's a woman on the outside looking inside, does she see me? No, she does not really see me cause she sees her own reflection And I'm trying not to to notice that she's hitching up her skirt and while she's straightening her stockings her hair has gotten wet oh this rain it will continue through the morning as i'm listening to the bells of the cathedral i am thinking of your voice and of the midnight picnic once upon a time before the rain began and i finish up my coffee and it's time to catch the train you are listening to episode five of Roaring Twenties Radio, a new show for Soho Radio with the best art, culture, books, poetry and activism. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Roaring Twenties Radio and it twenties is two zero S as opposed to the word. So I've only got about two minutes left of chatting. Um, I was paranoid. I was really terrified that I wouldn't manage to fill 40 minutes and I have done and it's been a breeze. So thank you for listening to my section. Up next, we've got Selena Godden and then Amber Rose Abrams is going to close the show. I wanted to leave you with a couple of writing prompts because even though I said I'm really struggling to access that creative space, I don't think the same uh, applies to most people. So my first writing prompt is very, very basic, but I want you to think about a journey that you've made at some point in your life. It might be a one-off, once-in-a-lifetime journey uh, that you'll always remember, or it might be a daily journey that you used to make. Obviously, journeys are not something we're making right now. So I want you to describe a journey 
which you've chosen for whatever reason, but I want you to describe it using only the senses. So using sensory ingredients. So thinking about the smells, the sounds, the textures and that sort of thing. I want you to avoid the narrative. Don't say, I went there, then I went there, then I went there. Think about the mode of transport. Think about how you're feeling. You might be really hungry. You might be tired. You might be upset. And think about how the senses are really, really impacting on that journey. Um, And use that to really, really bring it to life. Uh, And then the second writing prompt is to write a message to yourself in six months' time. Now, I realise that this might go on for longer than six months, but let's just imagine that it doesn't. Think about all the things that you will have gained. Think about the things that you will have lost the things that you might have learned to appreciate, the things that you might have learned about yourself or learned about others, learned about the people that you're living with. Think about how this will have affected you as a person. You've got through the other side. It might be a message of hope. It might not be. However you want to do it, I want you to write a message to yourself now, uh, write a message from now to yourself in six months' time. They're my two writing prompts. So I hope you've enjoyed my section. I'm going to leave you with a poem and a song, of course. Uh, the poem is by Saile Katebi, who is based in Bristol. He's a beautiful poet. And the song is by a French artist called Freshard. Um, I'll be tweeting links to these um, as, as the show goes on, so make sure you check them all out. Thank you for listening. My name is Matt Abbott, and this is Roaring Twenties Radio. A Prodigal Child Returns riding in on his chariot, hat in his hand on his heart, trying to bury it, concealing bleeding lungs, regretting leaving young if home is where the heart belongs, he wonders why he'd ever run, but I've been gone too long, home is a soured sentiment, my tongue curls at the curdled morsels of home that leave my lips, This fermenting familiarity wreaks havoc on my wit, my compass twists. Turning chaos into the core of this wayfarer's soul, you see. She may hug me like I never left. But what's left of our conversations begs questions of culture and kinship. My grandmother does not speak English. And I've lost the keys to our conversation. We navigate through our memories with caution, knowing there's a casualty waiting around every turn of phrase. She smiles. I smile. And the silence sings my shame. Dancing across the ivory tips of the elephant in the room, I had forgotten where I come from. So I reach for the strongest branches in our family tree. Hoping to see the seams in need of attention. Hoping to be the thread that binds this tapestry of kings and queens buoyed in the sinews of our oral tradition. And I am not alone in this. The diaspora are calling for home. We are forgotten seeds. Caught falling from the tree unshackled by the rainstorms we've suddenly flee. Manufacturing a genesis to jettison grief, ingesting debris, dressing a breeze in our recitatives. We are precipitations of old creations and new personas. Old theatrics just channeled into this new performance. We carry forward what older Noahs were handing down, embellishing the dialectics of our father's crowns. Bashukulu, Valim, Pela, Mano. 
My grandfather gave wisdom. I never knew it then, but I know it now and I hold it proud as I speak my piece. I'll carry the souvenirs my abuelo thought to be precious. Diamonds calcified over centuries worth of pressure, surviving oppression, pressing his legend into my stencil from a lineage of lions, his lessons, or my credentials. He offered the gold hidden in his soul. No rhythms from the old ways withered in his hold, so vivid in resolve, bold in his winning ways, showing me the roads that evolved to his glory days. And I've been tracing these constellations his conversations will conjure. Glowing confirmations of all the moments he conquered from praying for the rain to dancing with the hurricane and carrying the flame that coloured my mother's name. There's history folded in my family's diction. History folded in my family's name. Only in appreciating the way the distance brought me closer to the truth could I read between those lines in my grandmother's smile? My grandfather smiled when he handed me the keys to our culture. Knowing I could never stand alone. Never be alone while the cannons of our continent still echo inside these bones. I will always be a batterer of my beginning. Regardless of what land I live in. Best to get, best to get, You won't see me when I'm gum chewing. When I'm not smoking, I'm gum chewing. I follow your every movement. Call me my lieutenant. Investigate, investigate. Oh, I investigate. I tittle, tattle, pretend to lose. Just to be able to find more clues. If you're a swindler or a crook, I will play it by the book. Investigate, investigate. Oh, I investigate. If you double cross me and I have a hunch, I'll send you back yourself a lunch when a heart nut has to crack. Help me a little, I'll tip you back. Investigate, investigate. Oh, I investigate. Let me hear your lullaby, cause I don't buy your alibi. I'm very selective as a detective. I think motive and perspective.
gloves are sealed with red wax I'm not gonna tell them even if they ask Investigate, investigate crime because it's different every time I have to tell you it's not true I just guess who loves who investigate investigate oh I investigate Selena Godden and this is my section of the Roaring Twenties radio show brought to you from my bunker in East London. How are you all doing out there? Um, It's such strange, strange times and on my section of the show I'm going to bring you some lovely things to read, um, some wonderful poetry and some music for your lockdown listens. Let's kick the show off with this track. Nothing will 
tracks dedicated to everyone who's working so hard on the front line during this terrible, terrifying time. Okay, so the first poet that I've chosen for this section of Roaring Twenties Radio is Caroline Bird. I really enjoyed this book. It's called The Air Year. Caroline Bird is a poet and playwright. Her 2017 collection, In These Days of Prohibition, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Ted Hughes Award. She's a two-time winner of the FOIL Poets Award and her first collection, Looking Through Letterboxes, was published in 2002 when she was only 15. She's a formidable poet and I think this book is just extraordinary. The air year is a time of flight, transition and suspension, signatures scribbled on the sky. Bird speakers exist in a state of unrest, trapped in a liminal place between takeoff and landing, undeniably lost. This book is absolutely fantastic. I read it from cover to cover twice already. And here's something from the book now. Hello, I'm Caroline Bird and I'm a poet. And I'm going to be sharing with you a poem from my sixth poetry collection, The Air Year, published by Carcanet. Uh, this is a poem about, well, redemption of a kind, um, however small and diluted and it's told through the trope of almost well seemingly irredeemable television characters it's called the final episode the 18th century board who sells her daughter's virginity to an earl the tired cia operative who says just do it then half a village dies the plantation owner's wife The lonely CEO of the pharmaceutical company who screams like a banshee when an employee's baby pukes milk on her pantsuit. The detective who clicks her zippo underneath the incriminating photo of her boss. The complex one who lets her servant girl be whipped. Who dumps the radioactive material in the reservoir. Who is given the chance to apologise to a crying friend and instead pauses and says, fuck off who is unable to report her violent husband before he murders someone, unable to stop the drone pilot from pressing the button, scared of losing her promotion, covers her ears, utters lines like, I believe you are mistaken, my dear, and this is above your pay grade, kid, keep your nose out, who says, fine, fucking fine, when the partner who loves her but can't live like this anymore says, I love you but I can't live like this anymore, who thinks the truth would spoil everything, who burns the crucial letter, whose cleavage is angry and heaving, who drinks miniature vodkas in the hotel bath and nearly drowns, who wears her new husband's dead ex-wife's earrings to the christening, who can't forgive her stepson for existing, who lets the suicide call go to voicemail, who walks to the AA meeting, is met at the church gate by the greeter who says welcome, to which she replies, fuck you creep, and keeps on walking, who is sick in the sink, who suddenly feels the weight of her actions, who hyperventilates into a paper bag, who splashes water on her face in a public bathroom, glares at the mirror and says, wise up, who knows her narrative arc is peaking, knows there's goodness in her somewhere. The viewers have glimpsed it in close-ups and now they're halfway through the final episode and she's got 22 minutes to wrangle a denouement, fall on her dagger, hand over the list, clear her spiritual debt in a single payment. 
Look at her, standing on your porch step, holding out her heart like an injured bird and begging you to ruin her. Y'all pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. Just relax, relax. You're pushing it. It'll go up by itself. Don't put nothing in it unless you feel it. Let's do it again, please. They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not near. So I remember every face of every man who put me
There's a gorgeous piece of Nina Simone for you here on Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Selena Godden and this is the middle section of the show where I'm talking about books and music and the next uh, author I'd like to talk about is Niven Govindan. Niven Govindan is the author of five novels including Black Bread, White Beer which won the Fiction Uncovered Prize and All the Days and Nights which was long listed for the Folio Prize and shortlisted for the Green Carnation Prize. His latest book is absolutely fantastic. This Brutal House is out now with Dialogue Books. It's been shortlisted for the 2019 Gordon Byrne Prize and the 2020 Jalak Prize. Here's a little bit from Niven's book now. Teddy loved parties. From the first balls where he spoke to no one, to those under the mother's care, walking for them in drags, where he still largely kept to himself. The effort it took, the bravery, to walk a clear dance floor in an outfit conceived by another's hand, weighed more than socialising with the group. He'd stand with the children from his house, but was too nervous about what would follow to engage, nodding and smiling instead at everything they said, so that they would not think him rude. Self-conscious, too, of the clothes which were pulled and tucked to accentuate his frame. The mother's eyes were on point, always a deep V slashed to show off his chest, jeans or trousers cut high to best display the musculature of his thighs, maybe an earring clipped at one or both lobes, hair pulled back into the shortest of ponytails, giving him a headache after several minutes, but he was too wary of complaining. He wanted to be there, no question, relished how alive he felt in the heat and noise of the room, though it was possible to have stage fright when there was no stage. He was simply required to walk and dance, but the weight of those requirements in the moments before he took his place, the expectation also, was immeasurable, feeling as if he would cave under it. Book boy, you need to deliver. Walk as if your life depends on it. Take no mess from the vogue caller, the crowds, no one. We want to walk home with those trophies. Snatch them trophies, boy. Teddy boy, dance to the tune you like. Show them shapes, show them face. You've got the shoulders of a football player, but you can still be graceful. We've seen you practising in the apartment when you think no one's home. You're no Nureyev, but you've got some chops. You wouldn't be competing for us otherwise. Lighten up, Teddy boy. It's meant to be fun you're having. He thinks of soldiers laughing with each other before they head into battle, for this is similar, surely, the feeling that he must pull himself out of the trench and make himself known. What if I freeze? That must have happened before. What? Stop laughing. No one freezes on the dance floor, boy. Got too many attention whores in here. Don't make us think that you different. When his moment comes, he's deaf from noise, screaming, insult and proposition, walks like a blind man informed only by spatial sense, and somehow he makes it. This was the fear, their discovery that he was different enough to be kicked out of the apartment. Not everyone who passed through their homes walked in the balls. The children were not hustled to participate, but somehow the like-minded gravitated in their direction. Those without dance skills or the ability to wear clothes the way they should be worn were made to distribute flyers at bars and stalls or work the coat check, their voices and influence lesser than the more able children. He did not wish to be relegated, wanting so desperately to preserve what he had. When they asked him to dance, he danced, jerking to their tune. The mothers were the gods of the room, worshipped as such. 
He could not always equate their divinity with the mess they wore at home, housecoats most often, and any pyjamas of fabric they could find. They could wear the same housecoat for days, crusted with food stains and heavy with musk, burrowing deep inside their apartments in the weeks outside the balls, as if hibernation was essential to protect and restore the energy they brought to the dance floor. They could be playful, but they were not there to play. Play was for children and they were grown. He was all struck by the concentration on their faces, more than their actual dance moves in some cases. The moves slayed, but their intensity was the greatest revelation, how their voguing aesthetic married with the music, how instinctual each pose looked as they moved from one to another, how well thought out against the draping of fabric across their shoulders or around necks, how the tossing of a ponytail or wig was a move in itself, a riff of voguing poses centred around a plait and a housebeat, all of it graceful, all of it inspired, feeding off the crowd's energy and noise, and yet somehow moving independently from it, feet planted in an alternative universe. Clapped in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand Played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand Used to issue out a warning She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand Unwed mother, grandma's hand used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hand used to lift her face and tell her she'd say, Baby, grandma, understand that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hands, grandma's hand. candy grandma's hand pick me up each time i fell grandma's hand boy they really came in a handy she'd say matty don't you whip that boy what you wanna spank him for he didn't drop no apple core but i don't have grandma anymore if i get to heaven i'll look for grandma looking bad Seemed like total silence Was the only friend I had A bowl of oatmeal tried to stare me down And one And it was twelve o'clock before I realized I was having no fun Ah, but fortunately I have the key to escape reality And you may see me tonight with an illegal smile It don't cost very much But it lasts a long while Won't you please tell the man I didn't kill anyone No, I'm just trying to have me some 
checked my bankroll It was getting thin Sometimes it seems like the bottom Is the only place I've been I chased a rainbow down a one-way street Dead end And all my friends turned out to be insurance salesmen Ah, but fortunately I have the key to escape reality And you may see me tonight With an illegal smile It don't cost very much But it lasts a long while Won't you please tell the man I didn't kill anyone No, I'm just trying to have me some fun closet with all my overalls trying to get away from all the ears inside my walls I dreamed the police heard everything I thought what then well I went to court and the judge's name was Hoffman ah but fortunately I have the key to escape reality and you may see me tonight with an illegal smile it don't cost very much but it lasts a long while won't you please tell the man i didn't kill anyone no i'm just trying to have me some fun well done hot dog bun my sister's a nun You're tuned into Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm here in my bunker. I'm Selena Gordon raising a glass to Bill Withers and John Prine, who we lost just a few days ago. Coming up next in my section of books and music and poetry, I'd like to give a big shout out to Monique Roffey. Monique Roffey is an award-winning Trinidadian-born British writer of novels, essays, memoir and literary journalism. I've been enjoying her latest novel, It's the Mermaid of Black Conch, and here she is with a short reading now. The flat, dark sea broke open, the mermaid rose up and out of the water, her hair flying like a nest of cables, her arms flung backwards in the jump, her body glistening with scales and her tail flailing, huge and muscular, like that of a sea creature from the deepest part of the ocean. She beat up and out, arcing through the air, so she had flipped on her back. The men saw her head, her breasts, her belly, the pubic bone of a woman, where it met the tail of a glistening fish. Jesus Christ, exclaimed Thomas Clayson. Nicer crossed himself. The black conch men gasped. Cut the line, shouted Nicer Country. Cut the goddamn line. All five men were horrified as she hit the water, thrashing. Her mouth was bloody and she'd only just started to fight. On the end of Hank Clayson's rod was a wild creature, furious to be caught. Nicer knew they'd hooked something they shouldn't have. He jumped down from the flight bridge with his knife. The mermaid, or whatever it was, deserved to stay in the sea. This wasn't his business at all. The thing looked too big for the boat. It could even take the boat down. 
Don't do that, shouted Thomas Clayson, as nicer bent to cut the line. Do not do that. She's worth millions. Millions. We're bringing her in, goddammit. We are bringing her in. She was on the surface now, thrashing like a mako shark, fighting the line with her arms, coughing up blood and spitting and screaming in a high wailing song. Oh, God, stammered Hank. Did you see that? His hands were shaking with the rod. The father wanted to take it from him. The black conch men, Nicholas and Shortleg, backed away from the stern. Like nicer, they knew this was wrong. They frayed bad jumbie fish get catch. They didn't want to help. They were lost for words and for what to do. The white man wanted to pull this creature out of the sea. But this fish was half woman, plain enough. Everyone had heard of the mermen of black conch waters. But a mer-woman? Nah. She carried with her bad luck at best, and her hair had frightened them, like she could kill with just one lash from those tentacles. She could poison them all. They had seen spikes on her back, dorsal spikes, scorpion fish spikes. They had seen a bloody raging woman on the end of the fishing line. And now, these white men wanted to bring her in, Nah, boy, they all said to themselves. The mermaid had gone under the surface again. Young Clayton's face was full of terror and excitement. Hold her, shouted the father. What does it look like I'm doing, the father? The son snapped. Keep backing up on it, Thomas Clayson shouted to Nicer. Nicer? He had begun to see dollar signs. If it had been him alone, he would have thrown her back in the sea. But the talk made him realise he could make money. Enough for another boat, maybe. A new car. Or a small business of his own. Imagine that. He threw the throttle into reverse and slowed the boat down. That was an excerpt from The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Roffey. A fantastic love story published now by People Tree Press. We're going to switch back to poetry now. We're going to visit Will Burns in Buckinghamshire. He was named as Faber and Faber New Poet in 2014 with his first pamphlet published by Faber that year. In 2019 he released the album Chalk Hill Blue, a collaborative work with the fantastic composer Hannah Peel, which set a number of his poems to her music. His first full-length collection, Country Music, is published by Offered Road Books in 2020. It's out now, it's absolutely fantastic. Let's visit Will. Hi there. Um, thanks to Selena for um, having me along uh, on the Roaring Twenties radio. Um, my name's Will Burns. Um, I'm going to read a poem from my first uh, co- collection, Country Music, um, published by Offered Road Books. Uh, it's a poem called Biography. Every impression of a quiet life, steady, long. A fishing coat and bird book impression. The workshop at the bottom of the garden, the pottering, the seedlings needing potting on, another cricket season finished in the cold of autumn, mouthfuls of Siskin's song. The war years and post-war years, young, alive, strong, awkward military school impressions, something post-colonial, subtropical, Indian. The fundamentally disagreeing about or with or on the wearing of jeans or your hair too long, 
the years of impressing his opinion, whatever it had happened upon. The strangeness of a new generation, difficulty with computers, suspicion, the antivirus, anti-malware obsession, a late lingering on, a slight malingering, regression, palliative care, fat gut all gone, the unconvincing conviction there was life yet to come, one last bad night, all done. Those first, earliest impressions, to who do they belong? The council flat and dog-piss-stained kitchen linoleum, summers of maggots in the bins they'd overrun, somebody else's life spun on, his life in short, he just played the part of son. Out of doors, we knew sun up as mosquito time, playing itself out in a damp wood and the madness, really, of a dawn chorus being taped. Our field recordings made, so we might never lose a thing. Later, emptying his house, I found the tape machine, hit the play button and watched the acetate spool through the rollers, the ribbon taut against the tape heads, the cap stands still running, still keeping perfect time. It's a weekly hour I spend now, noting the changing greens of his nursing home garden. He cannot grasp what it is I have played him, how the report of birdsong swells into the spaces left between us, sitting here in this, his last and lighted room. So we had a double helping there from Will Burns. He was reading from his new full collection, Country Music, which is published by Offord Road Books. And we also slipped in a track there with his new work, uh, Chalk Hill Blue, with the composer Hannah Peel. We love that. Okay, so I'm coming to the end of my part of this show on Roaring Twenties Radio. Just to recap, thank you to Monique Roffey and The Mermaid of Black Conch, which is out now on People Tree Press. Thank you to Niven Govinden, his book The Brutal House, out now on Dialogue Books. Thank you to Caroline Bird, The Air Year, out on Carcarnet, And thank you to Will Burns, Country Music, on Offord Road Books. I'm also going to add to my book list I'm Not Sydney Poitier by Percival Everett, Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry, Rebecca's Soul Knit, Hope in the Dark, and Everything by Dark Mountain. I wish I was in a room with Matt and Rose now, and I wish we were all going to the pub, but we can't, and so I'm going to stay home and stay safe and miss you. Ah, I'm going to end my session here on Roaring Twenties Radio, on Soho Radio, with something I found in the archives. This is a song that I made when I was in my band, Salt Peter, with Peter Coit 
This track is called Every Day. Every day a little easier, every day a little lighter. Stay safe, stay home and be kind. Be good, eat your greens, drink rum. Thank you.
Rufus Wainwright with Grey Gardens echoing how I feel broadcasting after a long period of solitude from my home in North London bringing you the final part of this edition of Roaring Twenties Radio I'll be bringing you my usual recommendations in brief but the most of this episode for me will be my conversation with the critic Hetty Judah Hetty is a critic and an author. She's written for just about everyone you can imagine. She's currently main art critic for The Eye, writes regularly for The Guardian, and has written for The New York Times, Art Newspaper, Artnet, and Art Review, and many, 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 many more. Hi, Hetty. Welcome to the show. Hello, I'm Rose. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Um... Uh, art, so it's a funny old job writing about art, isn't it? It's a bit of a strange, I don't know, I always feel like when I explain it to people, it's a bit of a strange profession. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you came to do it. Um, I mean, it's, I guess, from two different directions, because I'm lucky enough to have a family where we have quite a lot of art in the background of our family. So my great-grandmother was an artist. She went to the Royal Academy School in the early 20th century. Um, And I have a cousin who was an artist that um, I shared a flat with when I was studying in Glasgow in the early 90s. So I guess I've always had art and making going on around me. Um, And when I was at Glasgow, I wasn't actually studying art, but I got very involved in the performance scene. And so I was participating in what I guess nowadays we term as performance art. Back in those days, it was called things like experimental performance or physical theatre. Sounds like a lot of fun. It was, was, and we did, we, I was on a, we were on a mixed bill with Lee Barry one night, which I think is probably a kind of (laughs) life high point. I remember him coming to um, to one of our student parties, which was just so exciting and ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I guess what's, I mean, I, I started writing about art really in the 90s because I had that kind of background in strange performance and strange, slightly tangential art world things. And there was a lot of art emerging at that time that the traditional critics didn't really have the tools to deal with. Yeah. So things like uh, sound and installation works and movement works and things that were really crossing over more into the kind of art that we're familiar with today that's maybe a bit more immersive or multifaceted, yeah. but that the that the critics who'd kind of grown up kind of writing about Turner and Reynolds didn't really, they didn't really have a vocabulary to deal with it, but they didn't want to ignore it. Yeah. So that's how I kind of came into it, I guess. And then at the moment, I feel like it's one of those, it's one of those times, but I don't know, that you can't really use a colloquialism like that, can you? It's a unique time, as everyone keeps saying, and I. it made me want to ask you, it can be tough to be an art writer, 
on many levels you know it's quite exposing you know it can be unstable it can be amazing it can be really demanding to be a journalist of any kind um so I wondered what keeps you writing about art what's kept you doing it I mean for me it's just that you're engaging with somebody else's ideas and quite often they can you know you can find something that kind of disgusts you or that puts you off or you find really difficult to deal with and that I find is always the most interesting kind of art to write about it was quite interesting I I interviewed Jerry Saltz actually another art critic last week and he's just written a book called How to Be an Artist but really it's him kind of talking about a lot of it's talking about his life and there's this great bit in the book where he has a double page spread that's completely red and the headline is know what you hate and underneath (laughs) he writes it's probably you. <laughs> and, and I think quite often if you're in, if you encounter an artwork that you find kind of difficult to get a kind of access point on or that horrifies you in some way, it's 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 it leads to some kind of interesting introspection and I find I mean I obviously I don't write about myself, but I think it's often quite interesting to ask about your own prejudices when it comes to art, why there's a certain kind of aesthetic that you might kind of find repels you a bit or why there's some why there's a kind of visual language that you find difficult to find an access point to um it's it's incredibly stimulating because you're always dealing with somebody else's ideas but quite often ones that aren't expressed in in um language which as a a, a kind of writing talky person yeah obviously is quite challenging and a challenge is always nice for somebody you know with an active mind i think Mm, mm -hmm. And um, and then I wanted to ask you as well, like the moment, it's a weird time. And I wondered, I thought it was a very unique time to be a writer or a journalist or a maker of any kind. And of how are you finding it? I mean, just on a really technical day to day point, I'm finding it really difficult to get anything commissioned. I think all of the publications have kind of gone onto some yeah. kind of, you know, um, kind of pared down format yeah and and it's kind of this disgusting thing where we all realize that we're very reliant on advertising revenue yeah and because there aren't any exhibitions there aren't advert adverts going into the magazines the newspapers so there's less page space so things aren't getting commissioned so i mean from a very technical level it's a bit sobering because you really realize that we're just filling in the space between the, the adverts that are actually keeping the whole thing going <laughs> along um I don't know. It's, I kind of veer widely between two opposing points, one of which is, you know, when I was speaking to Jerry Saltz and he's going, yeah, art thrives in this kind of situation. You know, art's always been made in these cramped spaces with all of life happening around it and we shouldn't be so precious about wanting to have, you know, quiet and special time and space to be creative in. If you're going to be creative, this is a great moment. And another part of me that thinks that actually we're all a bit shaken and traumatised and why should we be facing this undue pressure to be incredibly creative at this moment where actually we kind of just feel like hiding under blankets and eating mashed potatoes. Yes, exactly. And I think there's something about this because it is global that I think a lot of, when, you, when, you, when you're summing up the age or you're summing up a kind of a crisis, it was on a national level and I think that's to do with identity either as a foreigner or as somebody who's grown up in a place, a citizen, and you can kind of use that to kind of to create you know an overview but when it's global I think it's almost too much you know you, I mean maybe someone probably will 
but it's really difficult to create an overview of something which you can't see over. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's this um, term hyperobjects, which Timothy Morton, the I see an eco philosopher. I'm going to call him an eco philosopher. I'll probably Sorry. get told off for that. <laughs> but he's a philosopher, and he particularly engages with uh, the with environmental issues. Um, and he had a very interesting kind of, I think, three or four part series on the BBC radio recently. But he came up with this term hyperobjects, which is um, kind of phenomena that are too large for us to get our heads around. Mm. So things like global warming being one of them. And I think a pandemic, a global pandemic, I think is probably quite a good, um, yeah. good, a, a good example of a hyperobject. It's just to kind of get our heads around the death on that scale, sickness on that scale, the, the, the need for, you know, the resource of caring on that scale. It's, it's something that's kind of too big for us to process. And particularly since we're even more isolated than we've ever been, you know, that we're here in our little, our little home self. Yeah, bunkers. That's very yeah. strange. Yeah, that totally. That's a great, that's a great reference. Really. And um, I wanted to ask you, moving on from that, I wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about, well, I mean, I kind of about being out in the world in a way. Art London, your book that came out last year, and I and I wanted to ask you. It must be strange thinking back because it must have involved going to so many places and walking and soaking up the city um but how did it come about how did you start that project i mean it, it actually it, it started in a very prosaic fashion because the uh, uh, a commissioning editor came to me and said we want to do a book called art london but we and we have no idea what to put in it um, <laughs> so would you have any ideas what a book called art london could be um, and so I actually then started to think about the way that I took art in, in London. And I do pretty much every Saturday afternoon um, kind of take a segment of the London art map and kind of go around and take in, you know, six or seven galleries, if I can find ones that are close enough together. And I thought that that was quite a manageable way of putting together a, a book. So the idea that you would actually be on foot, that you could walk around a neighbourhood and yeah. you could find galleries that were obvious and galleries that were perhaps less obvious. And then I also wanted to put some historic context into it and also suggest uh, a kind of mapping of the city that showed that art didn't just happen in Mayfair, although a lot does happen in Mayfair, yeah. and that art wasn't just, you know, the kind of art with a capital A that we think of as that kind of, you know, big art historical art. There was all kinds of other art going on and all kinds of other art has always been made in the city that necessarily was, wasn't necessarily as celebrated or as well-known. So I wanted to create a very kind of plural vision of, of art in London. But, I mean, as you say, I, I kind of now think of the book as a strange artefact, and I'm, and I'm wondering when we come out of this how many of those galleries are still going to be there. Yeah. It, it's really very odd and very sobering, actually. Yeah, well, I just thank God that you documented it, put it down on paper. It that is, it is sobering. The idea that we're going not only are we going to be emerging in a few months to, you know, a different, a kind of changed society in some ways, but actually, there's lots of things to do with work. I think in a lot of industries and um, our local, even down to your local cafe, your local laundrette, lots of things might be gone, altered. It's really strange it's like a kind of it is a post-apocalyptic <laughs> literally 
kind of potentially, but nobody really knows. It's kind of just like everyone's kind of holding their breath. And I don't really think that people have taken on board how much things potentially could change.
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because one of the last features that I was researching before everything shut down, and I never got to write the feature because it seemed like an inappropriate time to write about it, was to do with um, art and the environment. Oh. And it was looking to an extent at the way that artists can present different ways of thinking about the climate crisis, but I was also looking at the way that the, um, the art world proceeds. And I interviewed Frances Morris, the director of Tate Modern, and she was she was quite um, outspoken about how unsustainable she sees the the what she at that point saw the kind of current model of the art world as being not simply in terms of the way that we travel, but in terms of this kind of the way that we judge the the success of an institution. So you know, if an institution's doing well, it's meant to be year on year getting bigger and bigger audiences. Yeah. It's meant to be working towards having larger exhibiting space it's meant to be acquiring more it's meant to be you know so it's meant to be this continuous model of growth yeah and she says i one of the things that keeps me awake at night is that i imagine that future generations will look back on our acquisition strategy today with the same horror that they currently that the current generation looks back on the way that we represented um yeah that the way that colonialism was represented the way that women were represented uh, you know, it was said there's this that it's going to actually be seen as something disgusting in the way that we're behaving at the moment, disgusting and short-sighted and destructive. Um, yeah. And I think it's I think there was already this feeling that the art world was slightly on this kind of crazy acceleration, and mm. something needed to happen. And suddenly, something has happened, and I wonder how it will come out the other end. Yeah, that's really. I'm I'm curious to see how it comes out. And I think this idea that bigger is better, the moment, just hearing you talk in that way made me think, oh, my God, that sounds so basic. It sounds like a, an obsolete idea. The, just that bigger is better, bigger, more, more money, larger. It's just kind of, it seems so incredibly basic. I don't know <laughs> that it could just, that's not a good idea, that there is not a finite, an infinite amount of space. In any, you know, in any direction, it just seems weird. Well, it's because, yeah, we, we judge the success of museums in the same way that we'd like judge the success of a supermarket chain. And <laughs> so we need to find, we, you know, we need to find new ways of, of, of evaluating things. You know, is this a good exhibition because it brought in hundreds of thousands of people? Or is this a good exhibition because it, you know, it promoted new scholarship on an artist or it brought new audiences in or it said something or it was important in some other way you know we need to start I mean I, maybe that's maybe that's why we're important you know maybe you know as art writers we need to find new ways of of um yeah. allowing these things to be evaluated yeah yeah that's the job it's, yeah yeah you're right <laughs> anyway that's, that's very self-congratulatory yes yes <laughs> but you know if you don't give it to yourself who's going to give it to you so well, yeah exactly but um, I wanted to ask you, just going back to Art London briefly, um, what was, um, you live in London, you're very much a London person, so what, um, was there any kind of wonderful surprise that you found in researching and writing the book? Yes, there was, I mean, it was full of surprises, and there's nothing like doing a really big piece of research to realise how little, you know, well, how little I knew, anyway, maybe you'd have a different experience. Um but I found spaces I hadn't known. I found kind of relationships between artists I hadn't known. I got to see. I'd never been to the. Um, I'd never been to the to the uh, the, the 
the Notre Dame de France, you know, the Jean Cocteau murals before. I mean, that was amazing. And they're quite well known. Um, and just kind of also diving slightly more into, you know, the, the history of people I kind of knew about tangentially, but didn't know that well, like Gwen John and her, her um, contemporaries at the slave school. Oh. And kind of, and just making connections between people. It was, um, yeah, and I found lots of galleries that I, I didn't know as well. That's amazing. And it's because, as you say, it's always what I love about kind of any creative community is that, that, that it's just so layered that you can you pull back a layer and you'll always find another layer. And there can be threads that you follow and they'll take you to the most surprising places or just a tiny place, a place that doesn't have a profile, maybe isn't looking to have one. It's been the it's ignited something which has found its way into something more mainstream. And and what was lovely as well is that it was a a lot of it was based on conversations with people. I'd, I'd chat to people and they'd tell me about things I didn't know about. Yeah. And I, at the risk of embarrassing you, obviously there's the Cascadie Centre <laughs> and that, and like, which I, which your father was involved in founding and which I found out about by talking with you. Oh, that's um, you know, and that was one of the lovely things about researching the book that everybody I spoke with, you know, kind of went, oh, do you know about this? And sometimes they'd be brilliant and fascinating and I you know, really was delighted to include them and other times they were like obscure or, you know, but there were, and so there were some things that didn't make it in, you know. I think Phila de Barlow told me about um, a performance that Marcel Brodtas did on Speaker's Corner and I couldn't find any record of it anywhere, but apparently when she was studying, she heard about it. Oh. Um so I love that conversational aspect of the research as well. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, now I think we're going to hear a little bit you reading from, uh, from Art London. I'm going to read a few of the short biographies from my book, Art London. The McLaren-Ross Circuit. In the early war-wrecked decades of the 20th century, it was to Fitzrovia that London's Bohemia came to drink, plot, argue, talk and flirt, but mainly drink. The area took its name from the Fitzroy Tavern, where artists, poets, composers, writers and their circle downed brandy alongside an eccentric cast of local characters. Augustus John, Wyndham Lewis and Nina Hamlet, the Queen of Bohemia, arrived in Fitzrovia after studying at the nearby Slade School. Among other notables were poet Dylan Thomas, artist's model Betty May, notorious occultist Alistair Crowley and the novelists Anthony Powell and Malcolm Lowry. Fitzrovia seeped into their art and their writing. Powell based the glamorous but dissolute novelist Ex Trapnel in A Dance to the Music of Time on the writer Julian McLaren Ross, a self-mythologising dandy drunk. After the Fitzroy Tavern became aggravatingly popular, Powell also nicknamed the pubs they favoured in his honour. The McLaren-Ross circuit took in the Black Horse, Bricklayer's Arms, Wheatsheaf and Marquis of Granby. A deft but unfocused writer, McLaren-Ross died aged 52 after receiving an unexpected royalty cheque that he invested, fatally, in a bottle of brandy, consumed in one sitting. Ida Carr The photographer celebrated for her portrayal of London's post-war bohemia had, herself, a life worthy of a three-volume novel. Born Ida Karamian to Armenian parents living in Tambor, Russia, her childhood was spent on the move, 
first to Iran, then Alexandria, Egypt. She moved to Paris in 1928, supposedly for a medical degree, but the lure of music and the avant-garde was overwhelming, and she fell into photography by way of surrealism. Her first photography studio was in Cairo, with her husband Edmund Bellali in the late 1930s. They exhibited with the Egyptian surrealists, but in 1944, Carr fell in love with British poet and art dealer Victor Musgrave, then serving in the RAF, and moved to London with him as the war ended. Through her surrealist contacts and Musgrove's Gallery One in Litchfield Street, Soho, Carr started to photograph the artists of her new home city. In 1956, legendary dealer John Kasmin took his first art world job with Gallery One, becoming both Carr's assistant and her lover, neither the first nor the last. In 1960, a solo exhibition of her photographs was held at Whitechapel Gallery, unprecedented in a time when photography was not yet to be accepted as an art form. Dante Gabriel Rossetti Rossetti was torn between passions for poetry and art, and, notoriously, beautiful women. The son of an Italian writer and scholar, he grew up on Charlotte Street in Fitzrovia. Dante was a middle name, but he favoured its associations with the great poet, whose work he translated, and whose divine comedy inspired his paintings. Medieval romance is where Rossetti found his principal inspirations. Knights and maidens... Fallen women, tragic love. In 1844, age 16, he enrolled in the Royal Academy schools. Encountering William Holman Hunt's The Eve of St Agnes, its subject drawn from a poem by Keats, he sensed kinship. He sought him out, and together with John Everett Millet, formulated the principles of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Rejecting the mannered grand style of the Royal Academy, the PRB favoured close observation from nature, powerful emotion and intense colour, reminiscent of 15th century Italian art. Rossetti indiscreetly let slip the existence of the PRB, intended as a secret society for journalists on the Times. The revelation coincided with a deluge of mocking hostility, a spectacle that put Rossetti off public exhibition of his work. Championed and supported by John Ruskin, it was often through the great critic that Rossetti found a market. In the early 1850s, the artist and poet Elizabeth Siddle became his lover and favourite model, often cast as characters from Dante. Rossetti delayed marrying Siddle until the 1860s, when she was already gravely ill. When Siddle died in 1862, Rossetti buried the only complete manuscript of his poems with her. He had them exhumed seven years later. A flamboyant and recognisable figure, the archetypal bohemian, Rossetti was sought out by younger artists, among them Edward Byrne Jones and William Morris, with whom he found, formed a second generation of the PRB. After Siddle's death, Rossetti moved to 16 Cheney Walk, which he shared with a menagerie including deer, exotic birds and his beloved wombat Top whose own death inspired the improbable verse tribute. Neither from owl nor from bat, can peace be gained until I clasp my wombat. William Hogarth, the painter and his pug. 
in a period when the Royal Academy was exhorting art in the heroic vein. Flattering, glorious, grand, Hogarth remained stubbornly devoted to real life. The drama, muck and bawdiness of Covent Garden's coffee houses and taverns were Hogarth's territory. Joshua Reynolds and the Academy did not approve. The connoisseurs and I are at war, you know, Hogarth explained to a young friend. Perhaps his art was more intimately bound up in the rapidly transforming city than any history painting could be. He made some of the first English theatre paintings, capturing John Gay's sensational Beggar's Opera. He engraved frontispieces for some of the earliest novels, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones and Joseph Andrews. Like Reynolds, though, he was determined to make a case for English painting and promoted its public display, donating works to St Bartholomew's and Coram's foundling hospitals, that they might be seen by all. Printmaking was flourishing in London as a growing middle class emerged with the wherewithal to purchase decorative luxuries for the home. Engravings of Hogarth's popular moral series, A Harlot's Progress, A Rake's Progress, and marriage a la mode, were sold on subscription. The moral quality of such narrative works permitted the inclusion of compromising details relating to the venal, sexual and alcoholic debauch of their protagonists, and one imagines Hogarth did so with wicked relish. Hogarth's self-portrait with his beloved dog Trump, the painter and his pug, beautifully encapsulates this balance between exquisite care and vulgar delight. Hogarth appears in a portrait within a portrait, alert but insouciant, in a silk dressing gown and velvet cap. His oval canvas is propped up on volumes by great dramatic storytellers and wits, Shakespeare, Swift and Milton. To the left, his palette carries the line of beauty, a serpentine curve that underpins his theory of aesthetics. To the right sits Trump, Ears cocked lopsidedly, eyes cynically hangdog, tongue protruding lasciviously from his mouth. There's no fooling this dog. He sees everything from the ground up. That was Hetty reading from Art London and now more of our conversation, this time about her new book on Frida Kahlo. Reading the book I felt like I was learning so much about um, the historical context as you mentioned and it made me think, I really felt like it was as much as it was a book about her, it was a book about politics, what it was like to be living amongst the politics in Mexico and in the United States at that time. What what drew you to this kind of thread? I think it was partly, you know, she and Diego were very, very politically involved. And I think that more than anything really shaped their career. And you, you have them living in the United States for quite a long period. And part of the reason for that is because of the shifting political tide in Mexico and the fact that they couldn't perhaps get work at a certain point or that they were being kind of um, bitched about by other communists who said they were accepting commissions from gringo capitalists. Mm. I mean, politics was a huge part of her life. She met Diego through her membership of the Communist Party um, as a young woman. And when she became very ill um, towards the end of her life and she was pretty much bedridden, 
the thing that she became very fervent about was wanting to be a good communist and worrying about the fact that as an artist she wasn't useful to the cause. Mm. Um, her last public appearance was at a, at a political demonstration. And alongside all of the artwork that she and Diego were making, you know, they were doing an enormous amount of quite active political work. They were working with refugees, they were working with labour organisations, they were making sure that people had money, they had making sure people had you know, could get home to their families when they needed to. So it, it was it was a large part of her life and so I think it was important to give a sense of the context yeah. in which that was happening. It's like real grassroots activism there. Mm. And the other thing that struck me, which you also touched on, um, was was there? Yeah, was the amount of pain that physical pain that she endured throughout her life, and and the kind of and how it, you know, she's this at once she's this strong, you know, not people aren't you know singular, you know, but I got this impression of this kind of like amazingly charismatic, intelligent, talented, strong, vivacious person. At the same time, somebody who maybe had their power taken away in different ways, in which, in ways which must have been quite difficult to deal with as a person with that personality. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it, it must have been so frustrating because all of the things that she wanted to do became difficult to her. Just, I mean, even as a very young woman when she was first in San Francisco and she wanted to walk through the city and she was getting these... Because she'd had polio as a child, she was getting terrible ulceration on her foot. And so it was very, very painful to walk. And, you know, she wanted to travel, but sitting on a train for a long time was making her back very painful because she'd had this terrible bus accident as a teenager. And you... There's this... There's a bit in it where she's just started a relationship with the um, the American sculptors, the Simon Noguchi, and he talks about you know going with her to to bars and to nightclubs, and he said she loved to dance. She wanted she wanted to do everything that she couldn't do. Um, and I I think yeah, there were clearly moments where her spirit did fail her a bit, but yeah. I think she was just um, I mean she she really was in quite extreme pain and she and she just had this spirit to keep going but she did take an enormous amount of drugs and she did drink very heavily as well i think we should uh, that be helps clear about with that. many many <laughs> facets of pain yeah <laughs> uh no i think there was i think that, that i can't remember who, who it was but there was one i think it was diego's biographer that said that she drank a bottle of hennessy every day oh my at a certain god point. when she was tiny as well she was very very slight so that was a lot, and she also was taking a lot of painkillers. Okay. Um, and definitely, you know, kind of, I think it was in a way, it almost became the drugs and the alcohol that kind of ended up getting in the way of her spirit. That you can definitely see towards the end of her life in her notebook that she's getting her mind's kind of wandering and she's not painting sharply because you know, she's such a precise, yeah, artist. Yeah. It's a shame, but I guess to a lot of them yeah. in the sense for reason we, that's another program entirely but um <laughs> but um i want and that book is out it's, is, is it out in october and then um in the u.s in uk sorry and then it'll be out here sorry i've got it backwards it'll be out in um here in october and in the u.s it'll be out shortly in june 
Yeah, well, it was meant to come out in the US to coincide with an exhibition in Chicago. So there was this amazing initiative that lots of museums in the States came up with, which was to put on exhibitions of art by women in the six months before the presidential elections, like a kind of women's march, kind of pussy hat wearing gesture against Trump, that they would have the show of females, excellence and creativity, you know, as the kind of backdrop to his presidential campaign. So all of these museums programmed shows, one of which was Frida in Chicago. Um, whether that will still go ahead, who knows? But it would be nice to imagine it might. Yes. But yes, so it's, it comes out in June to, to coincide with that. And that was Hetty Judah, who joined me earlier today over the phone. Um, in terms of art to see this month, if you want to see it, you've got to go online. Because as we all know, it's all closed. Um there's a lot of stuff. Lots of um, museums like Tate have put exhibitions online so you can have virtual tours if you visit their websites. I would check most major museums are doing that um, internationally as well. So that's a great opportunity to have a look around some international collections. Big galleries like Hauser and Worth and Sadie Coles are putting amazing content online. Hauser, um got their Louise Bourgeois exhibition online and um, Sadie Coles have got a wonderful, crazy um, AI-related work called Geomancer by the artist Lawrence Leck on their website and there's a sequel coming up. Theatres are also broadcasting performances either via YouTube or on their websites. For example, I think the National Theatre is broadcasting and the Royal Albert Hall is doing a series of gigs, which should be wonderful. Even though it's so hard in these environments that we're in, our homes, but not as we know them, I'm really looking forward to what people make and do during this time. Although, maybe, it's also just an opportunity to take a well-earned rest. Well, this has been Roaring Twenties Radio, the Bunker Sessions. I'm Emma Rose. You've also heard from Matt Abbott and then Selena Godden. Um, thank you for tuning in. Looking forward to next month. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of you, some of you, at some point in the future. Thanks so much. This is Pink Moon. So I written and I saw it say Bingo Moon is on his way None of you stand so tall Bingo Moon gonna get you on to Bingo Moon